This is Black Bias, an in-depth look at the representation of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities in the news. A special fourth estate coming to you through the studios of 2SER and heard across Australia on the Community Radio Network. I'm Rihanna Patrick, a Torres Strait Islander journalist and broadcaster. I spent almost two decades at the ABC working across news, TV documentaries and national radio programming amongst other things and have been in the media game for nearly 25 years. And I'm Madeline Heyman-Reba, a proud Gumaray woman and Indigenous Affairs journalist. I've worked in the media for over a decade across commercial, community and Indigenous media, including NITV, 10 News First Melbourne and Community Radio. Maddie, as Indigenous journalists, we're only too aware of how terms like objectivity and bias have been used to discourage us from reporting on stories from our communities or have been used to imply that we can't remain impartial when doing this coverage, regardless of the sensitivity and unique expertise we bring to the job. That's right. And it has happened within the newsroom from our colleagues and from our audience. As journalists, our work is always factual and brutally honest, but it seems that speaking our truth is frowned upon across much of the industry. So true, Maddie. And it's ultimately why we decided to call this six-part series Black Bias as a way of looking at how the media has represented our communities during major public health issues, ownership of land, to race and reporting. While the representation of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in the news has indeed come a long way in how our communities are reported on by mainstream news outlets, unfortunately, the negative stereotypes, deficit narratives and unethical practices continue. There's a fine line between race and racism when looking at it in the context of the Australian mainstream media and its reportage of Indigenous affairs. Journalism by its very essence is founded on the exclusion of others, a profession which originally was solely the domain of rich white men or white men who were funded by other rich white men. A profession which has struggled with its historical foundations in a changing world where a growing audience is searching for news through the eyes and perspectives not traditionally offered by mainstream media organisations. Despite the growing number of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander journalists and media workers, the media has been complicit in hindering the political aspirations of our communities. Aspirations around treaty and self-determination all of which are shaped by the media, which has the power to make our political world understood by the wider community and in turn determines how those topics are talked about. How has legacy media been the driver of what could be considered racist campaigns and what have been the effects of this on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities? Just a trigger warning for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners though, this conversation will be talking about reportage of Aboriginal deaths in custody. So if this is likely to raise anything for you, please consider giving 13 Yarn 139276, the new 24-7 national support line for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders, a call or lifeline on 13 11 14. So what are we talking about when we talk about racism and legacy media? Media monitoring organisation Altogether Now analysed more than 300 opinion articles in the Herald Sun, the Daily Telegraph, the Courier Mail, the Age, the Sydney Morning Herald, and The Australian, which focused on race from 2019 to 2020. It found that more than half, 53%, involved negative depictions of race. 89% of racist opinion pieces in mainstream Australian newspapers were authored by people from an Anglo-Celtic and or European backgrounds. And 79% of racist opinion pieces used techniques of covert racism. Communities targeted by the highest percentage of racist opinion pieces were Muslim people, 79% negative, 
Chinese and Chinese Australian people, 55% negative, and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, 47% negative. But let's go back to 2011, when opinion writer Andrew Bolt was found guilty of racism for alleging in two articles in the Herald Sun that lighter-skinned Aboriginal academics and public figures were not Aboriginal. He made derogatory comments and argued that these individuals had used a fake Aboriginal identity for financial gain. I remember this case well, as in another article, he'd also targeted ABC Indigenous staff, but that article was eventually taken down. Since that time, though, multiple politicians supported by various legacy media have campaigned for reform of 18C of the Racial Discrimination Act, which they see as a threat to free speech. Section 18C was introduced by the Keating Labor government in 1995, and it reads, It is unlawful for a person to do an act otherwise than in private if A, the act is reasonably likely, in all circumstances, to offend, insult, and humiliate or intimidate another person or group of people, and B, the act is done because of the race, colour, or national or ethnic origin of the other person or some of or all of the people in the group. And it's in this context with the debates by the far right in the Liberal Party, the role of the Australian Human Rights Commission and the leadership of the now former president of the commission, Professor Gillian Triggs, that our next case and the Australians' coverage of it should be understood. In 2016, Cindy Pryor made a claim against Queensland University of Technology of racial discrimination. Pryor had worked at the Ujuru Nunakal unit at QUT when she encountered several male non-Indigenous students trying to use computers in the space which were reserved for Indigenous studies. She asked them to leave. In a Facebook group called QUT Stalker Space, the students complained about the experience and quickly turned to overt racist terms such as the N-word. Prior complained to the university's Equity and Diversity Unit, who found the comments weren't racist, but individually counselled students and sought the removal of the comments. Dissatisfied, Prior launched a complaint with the Australian Human Rights Commission for reasons including non-attendance of the students. Conciliation at the commission was unsuccessful. Pryor then exercised her right to take the students to court and sought damages, citing contravention of the Racial Discrimination Act. Professor Heidi Norman is based at the University of Technology, Sydney, where she leads the Indigenous Land and Justice Group. Heidi and three colleagues also analysed the coverage by The Australian of the Pryor case. Heidi, what was the level of coverage towards this case by The Australian? In our study of The Australian newspaper's coverage of what we can broadly refer to as a Cindy Pryor case, we concluded that what the Australian demonstrated was an indecent obsession. And what I mean by that is in the calendar year 2016, the Australian printed 84 articles, there were 14 letters and thousands of online reader comments that made reference to Cindy Pryor's racial discrimination complaint. In the same period, we found only two articles published by the Fairfax Media-owned group that referenced the complainant's racial discrimination action. So what we have argued here is that in if we look at the Australians' coverage of this particular case, they escalated interest in this particular story. They dedicated a staff writer to cover court proceedings they wrote several editorials and attracted a large community of commenting readers. So over the course of 2016, 
the case became a small but important story of a much more an ambitious political agenda that included political leadership, right-wing factional control within the Liberal Party, reform to Section 18C of the Racial Discrimination Act and the role of the Australian Human Rights Commission. So that is to say that while one Aboriginal woman, her complaint featured, actually the Australian focused and fixated on this case in order to mount a much more um, widespread undermining um, an ideologically led agenda. How did the Australian use Prize story to promote other themes surrounding the larger debate at this time? There are a few things. One is that identity politics is a real feature. So they argued in our analysis of the 98 stories, so that comprises the 84 articles and the letters, they heroised the young men who made the complaint. They were quite often depicted in front of quite um, you know large case of bookshelves stacked behind them. Cindy Pryor wasn't quoted once. She didn't participate in any of the media coverage. She was largely um, depicted by the end of the coverage as a, as a victim. Uh, identity politics was a key feature. So you had editorials alarmed at the attack on, on white men. The so-called bulk case saw an intensification of this discourse. One of the key features that emerges in the coverage of the you know, what we refer to as a Cindy Pryor case, is that the Australian developed what what we refer to as a reportage ecosystem. So they were the only media outlet focused on this case. And they not only, in the articles, the art, their reportage itself became the story. So in subsequent articles, they referred to their other reportage. They quoted the comments. They quoted from letters. They quoted from online readers. Their their own journalists quoted one another. So they, they in effect, created this, this ecosystem of reportage around this um, topic. They created the momentum and sustained this as a, as a topic of media interest over the course of 2016. So to give some examples of this, Nine of the news articles and opinion pieces made reference to reportage in The Australian. The newspaper reported on a survey that it ran, uh, seeking views on the actions taken against the Queensland University students, so that's a quote. Then they report that 50% of people oppose the action. Uh, Earlier articles presented an exclusive or breaking that were then cited in subsequent articles. In the absence of any genuine developments in the case, we can see here there was a determined strategy to continue regular reporting on the complaint. The Australian frequently reported on high-profile opposition to disparate aspects of the case. So, for example, um, they quoted an Aboriginal woman who was opposed to, apparently opposed to the existence of separate Aboriginal education spaces within higher education. And then later... They extended their coverage from uh, the Cindy Pryor case to then take aim at the Gillian Triggs as president of the Australian Human Rights Commission. And Heidi, that's what I was going to ask. I mean, how did that coverage, I guess, change over time? A key feature of the coverage and commentary was the use of reader comments. So over that year, as they published those 84 articles, the reader comments were gaining, you know, by the thousands. One article was the highest number of 
reader comments in the history of, um, you know, reader comments in the Australian, um, that I indicated that the, the reader comments were referred to in articles as indicative of the level of community interest in the case and as citizen views about Aboriginal rights, identity politics and the role of the Human Rights Commission. So this is an example of some of the editorial headings. This is by Jennifer Oriel, quote, white, male and increasingly discriminated against. Another editorial, I quote, beheading threats are fine but don't hurt any feelings. This attracted the highest number of overwhelmingly agreeing reader comments with 604 and 614 comments. Uh, Headley Thomas, he was the dedicated reporter on this case. He has an article that starts um, with the headline, Triggs Failing Older White Men. It attracted the highest number of reader comments in the study, so 964. The articles that generated the most reader comments were those that referenced white identity and were antagonistic by this stage to the president of the Australian Human Rights Commission. In terms of the character of the reporting, this is this is the general pattern. So in the first half of the year, reportage focused on Pryor's character. So there was the absurdity of her claim of racial discrimination, segregation, and the glowing character of the undergrad students. So that was the character in the first half of the year. By the second half of the year, Cindy Pryor was referenced in two ways. Firstly, as an inflammatory exemplar, in relation to allied stories critical of the Human Rights Commission and the Racial Discrimination Act. And then secondly, there was a a further shift in that second half of the year where Cindy Pryor was referenced as a counterpoint to sympathetic profiles of the undergraduate students. So the students became the profile, they became the source of discrimination, their careers were in jeopardy. So that Cindy Pryor becomes, you can see she sort of fades in and out you know, she, she's a woman who was really injured by this coverage, but she becomes really um, a vehicle for advancing many other ideas. So there is a real cruelty and violence that goes with this, and you can see that her as, a, as an Aboriginal woman um, is really quite invisible in the whole story. She's constructed in different ways across the, that year of reportage, um, and, and she's largely invisible. Her voice is not anywhere in in this reportage. What what is more apparent is the these young men. So they're profiled very sympathetically. Um, we hear much more about them. We're led into their lives, their their suffering, um, their their jeopardised futures. We don't hear any of that in terms of um, Cindy Pryor. In your research, you talk about different narratives: the white mastery narrative, the irreconciliation narrative the subordination narrative, and the sovereignty-slash-nationhood narrative. How would you describe the narrative used here? So we, we developed those four narratives in relation to a, a book we wrote that was titled 45 Years of News Media Coverage of Aboriginal Political Aspirations. If we think about those four narratives in relation to this study, I think what emerges is a, is a white standpoint. At no point is there any view, any Aboriginal worldview canvassed? It is all about the threat that Aboriginal people pose to the nation. And that threat is at a very local level, like an ed- a 
computer room, access to a computer room, and then escalates up to institutions like human rights institutions and legal rights like the Racial Discrimination Act. So it's a white standpoint. And what we mean by a white white standpoint or a, a, a white domination narrative is that there is enormous suspicion about your very existence, about your your right to be, your right to exist. While targeted stories like the Cindy Pryor case can be both overtly and covertly racist in their intentions, the Australian newspaper's coverage of the death of Kumanjay Walker in Central Australia and the subsequent trial in March this year was condemned by multiple Indigenous journalists. Northern Territory Police Officer Zachary Rolfe was acquitted of the shooting of 19-year-old Walker in November 2019. The court heard Walker was shot three times with Rolf arguing he acted to protect his and his partner's safety. Rolf was the first Northern Territory police officer to face trial over an Aboriginal death in custody since the 1991 Royal Commission and was found not guilty by an entirely non-Indigenous jury. Several high-profile Indigenous journalists condemned the coverage as unethical, victim-blaming and insensitive. Channel 10, 10 First News presenter and Wadjuk Noongar journalist Nerelda Jacobs was one of those who criticised the coverage. Nerelda, I have to admit that I haven't read these stories because I've been triggered in the past by news coverage of particularly the Black Lives Matter movement, but I did see the headlines. I mean, what was your reaction to that story in The Australian after Kumanjay Walker's trial judgment was handed down? I was bewildered, flabbergasted and shocked and stunned. Um, here you have a situation where on the Friday when the verdict was handed down, Kumanjay Walker's family and the Yundamu community, the Walpuri people, came outside of court and gave the most powerful message to Australia, you know, that Kumanjay Walker was loved. He was uh, an active member of his community. He actively participated in ceremony. He had cultural intelligence. Um, he provided for his family, you know, he was missed from his community. Um, here you had a community and elders who fiercely and passionately gave a plea to the nation, please let us have control of our community policing. We don't want any guns on our community. We don't want what happened to Kumanjay to happen to anybody else. It was impassioned. It, it gave you goosebumps. You know, it gave you chills and you, you you couldn't help but watch what happened outside of court and just feel empowered that this was never going to happen to anybody else. And then the next day to read on the front pages of our national broadsheet that this man, Kumanjay Walker, the man who was shot dead by police by a second and third shot that was unnecessary. It was the second and third shot was, that was on trial here, not the first one that rendered him uh, uh, no longer a threat to officers, but the second and third shot. So the very next day after hearing this impassioned plea to the Australian public, you had the Australian headline saying that this man was a monster who was unloved, an unwanted baby who became a monster. It effectively put Kumanjay Walker on trial for his own murder, for his own death. This was after the verdict. You know, usually in um, usually what happens with trials is there is a whole heap of things that can't be presented during the trial, 
because it will um, impact the jury on, in some way. It will, it will influence the jury. So there's a whole heap of things that you're not allowed to say. The next day, though, you can say whatever you like about the defendant. It was the Australian's job to tell the truth about Zachary Rolfe. And they didn't do it. You know, afterwards, well after the fact, did we see um, uh, text messages that Zachary Rolfe had sent to people. We, we had seen a whole raft of evidence that, um, that went to the fact that Zachary Rolfe looked forward to his time in the desert because it was lawless. You could do whatever you want and get away with it, you know. And so it kind of set, set up this premise that he was this um, young officer who, who, could, who thought that he could run in guns blazing. You know, that was the sort of images, that, that was the image that, we, that, that was presented by these very text messages that he himself sent to some friends like months before he, he took on this, this posting. We didn't hear any of that in The Australian. What we did hear about was how Kuman J. Walker somehow deserved his fate. You know, he deserved it. Look what she made me do. That was a sentiment from the Australians reporting. And it was just outrageous and it needed to be condemned. Norelda, how did these stories describe Mr. Walker as a person? Do you remember any of the, you know, specifically racist terms that were used in the coverage? He was described as an unwanted child, um, which wasn't the case. It was not the case. There were family members who, who wanted him. His family wanted him. His family loved him. But to the, the pure fact that he was um, uh, uh, taken into foster care at di different parts of his life was interpreted as meaning that he was an unwanted child. That is not what that means. There's so many different reasons to unpack there as to why he was in, in um, state care. And it wasn't because he was unwanted, you know. So that's fact number one. Fact number two is that they that they apparently spoke to members of his, his community, um, his partner who had talked about some uh, some, some violence in their, their relationship. Um, I can't speak for you know what took place between the journo and um, and that that partner or those family members, but what I can say was that there was no balance provided in those articles in those stories. Where was where where was this slab of um, of direct quotes the day before outside court? It was like these stories had been written before the verdict had even been handed down, and all they needed to do was press play. You know, they just needed to press print. They didn't care what the verdict was. They'd already made their minds up. And it was evident in the reporting that the day after the verdict. Um, you know, what was just absolutely infuriating was, was that, you know, and this was echoed um, outside court as well by, uh, by Samara Kumanjay Walker's um, cousin who said, you know, throughout this whole thing, Kumanjay was on trial for his own murder. People's minds had already been made up. They weren't listening to the evidence that was provided in court. And it was the Australian's job and it was critical media's job to present the facts that were not presented to the jury about the defendant. Coleman J. Walker was already dead. What benefit, what public benefit was there in saying these things that just further compounded the anger, hurt and pain by his grieving family? There was no public benefit. The only public benefit is to um, look into who is Zachary Rolfe? 
what facts were not presented to the jury about Zachary Rolfe, the man who fired the shots that killed this 19-year-old who had his whole life ahead of him? You know, that's what was presented um, to the Australian public who weren't sitting in the courtroom, you know, and, and so that's what was, the, the, the whole premise was um, distinct in racism. Do you think this coverage would have been the same if the man shot had have been non-Indigenous? Oh, absolutely not. I mean, we would have we would have been presented with um, with with what happens every time. You know, even if even if a serial killer is caught, the headlines are um, how a, a, how a pillar of society could you know commit multiple murders. Like, how could this happen? Um, you know, and and we talk about you know volunteering in the community, you know, doing little athletics, and um, oh, how could this person become this monster? Whereas it was the other way around, like the unwanted baby who nobody wanted. You know, it, it, it the, the whole it, it look. We would have been talking about if this was a white person. We would have been talking about how this person provided for their community, how this person was loved by their family, and then just by the way they were in this situation that that took their life in an instant you know it would have been it would have been presented as um, a story that happened in a moment rather than a story that happened over the last 19 years you know it we wouldn't have been presented with um, how this person deserved to die because this is what their life was like that wasn't what Kumajay Walker's life was like what we were presented with the day after and all the consequential reporting, the editorial editorial pieces, um, the comment came afterwards that was running in the Australian for weeks and weeks afterwards. They were doubling down on this. You know, they should have, they had the chance to present all of the facts about Kum and Jay Walker, but they kept the line of presenting that's the, that single line of facts that made, that tried to make people believe that Kuman Jay Walker deserved those second and third shots that killed him. Narelda, one thing that I found quite interesting during this time was the community, the Walpuri community in Yuindamu controlling their narrative. And, you know, I thought that it was quite powerful, but I wonder, you know, do you remember a time when a community ha has done that where they've just said, media, don't come to our community, don't harass us, don't talk to us. We're, we're the ones that are going to control this. Yeah, I, look, I, I I love that and all power to them. Uh, and that's where media like NITV um, and like SBS and, and Bridget Brennan did incredible reporting of the, the uh, Zachary Rolfe trial. That's where you need to have trusted trusted media go in there. I mean, you know, that that whole slab of comments outside of court was just so powerful. If you, if you haven't seen it, please go back and find it because it will it will give you goosebumps. You know, it, it really it it changes you to to see to see that happen. And um, I just uh, look, I can I completely understand why a community like the Walpuri community would want to control that narrative. Um, in WA, we saw um, protests after verdicts. Um, we saw you know rioting in the street after verdicts. Um, in Geraldton, we saw rallies, peaceful rallies um, that escalated with things being thrown in the, at the courthouse and things. Um, but you can you, you can understand the anger that's there. But the thing that that the main, mainstream of Australia need to be able to see is what led up to those moments of anger. 
you know, the, these communities and, um, and families just feel like they are not being heard. Um, and in Geraldton, I referred to the, to the um, JC, the, the shooting death of JC, which was the first um, not guilty verdict that we saw. Um, and, and now this one, and uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's like, how many more goes do we need at, at holding people to account? I mean, JC didn't even, she wasn't moving and she was shot dead. She was, she was stationary and not moving in the middle of the street and she was shot dead by an officer and that's not guilty. So it's, it's like, I can, look, I can understand why people are taking to the streets because it, it is that level of, of, um, of public anger and outrage that, you know, that we need to see that will hopefully, hopefully lead to change. Um, so I understand when families say, we don't want you reporting because you will not, you will not um, tell the truth. You're, you're not being uh, truthful in your reporting. So I can completely understand. Um, and actually that should happen more, to, to be honest with you. But then you'll see uh, a situation where the, the voice won't be there. I mean, as Heidi already said, um, Cindy Pryor's voice wasn't there. Cindy Pryor was available for comment, but her voice wasn't heard. You know, so so, what do you do in those situations? I don't, I don't know. You know, I, this is something that I that I grapple with all the time. Um, you you don't want to lend your voice to certain sectors because you know that it could be skewed. But then if you say no, there will be no presence there in the first place. So I don't know what to do in this situation. I think we just need to make sure that the ABCs and the SBSs and the NITVs and um, and and the ten news first uh, of the world, you know, just make sure we get the reporting right. Heidi, how are these kind of stories still being written in two thousand and twenty-two? How I come to this work is less as a journalist and more thinking about what is the role of the media in broader debates and the circulation of ideas. So for me, what I'm inclined to think, say if we think about the Cindy Pryor case, many other, many other examples of reportage, how is it that actually there is an ideological agenda here that is about the protection of resources, that is about the security of particular ideas about the sovereignty of the nation, the security of the sovereignty of the nation, where, you know, Aboriginal demands or First Nations demands sit within that political discourse. And certainly what what we came to argue in the how the Australian dealt with that reporting in the year two thousand sixteen of a of really a very small scale a a, dis, a complaint to the Human Rights Commission, they receive thousands of complaints every year. Why is it that the national newspaper dedicates a writer and they, statistically at least, that's more than an article a week on this a, a particular event that really is, it, it should never have warranted that sort of interest. So why was it interesting? And what I would argue is that a case like this that is small, very small scale, is about um, how the Australian took this up is that they're saying that this is a challenge to the security of whiteness in Australia, right? This is a challenge to the security and that, that there are all these institutions that operate um, that are undermining the security of the, you know, Australian identity as a white nation, 
um, the security of Australian sovereignty that Aboriginal worlds have always, even by not doing anything, your very presence contests. Mm. So, and, and, and Heidi, eventually, um, you know, we've seen a, a human rights commissioner, Captain's Pick, put in there that ticks all of the, those boxes that you're talking about, which has also caused you know, a lot of criticism from, from different sectors of the community. Yeah. So I think it's important for us to look closely at reporting, interrogate the discourse, interrogate how media sits within the circulation of ideas, how it informs policy, how it informs public opinion, especially if we look at the Cindy Pryor case. I think one thing that's really evident is that it's also about cultivating a community of readers and, and cultivating um, a certain language, um, inciting hostility to the assertion of rights. So this is, um, you know, a, an ecosystem, if you like, um, that, that involves the fourth estate, it involves political elites, um, it, it generates particular public sentiments and opinion. And I, I agree that, you know, I think... We, we are we are talking about how do journalists do better? You know, how, how can reporting on Indigenous issues be done mm. better? That's one absolutely. thing. Yeah, absolutely. And um, there's so many parallels there with the Kumanjay Walker reporting. Going back to him being taken from his family, you know, they were doubling down in, in saying that children, at-risk children, need to be taken away. Um, when that goes against everything that we're talking about now, we don't want another stolen. We don't want any more stolen generations. We need to have a reinvestment in in the whole um, state-run uh, foster system. You know, so to strengthen families. You know, when you've got a situation where two million dollars is being spent housing two sisters in hotel rooms for one year, I mean that is a ridiculous spending of money, a waste of resources. When that family could be bought a house. You know, and they could be um, set up for the rest of their lives for, for $2 million. That's a, that's a lifetime's investment, not one year's investment as a stopgap measure. Um, so first of all, it's that issue. Second of all, is the whole law and order issue. They, they, they wouldn't want a community um, policing themselves. Like, heaven forbid, a community can police themselves and, and demand that there be no guns. What happens then to the whole tough on law uh, rhetoric that we hear around the country? Um, and, it, you know, the editor of The Australian went so far as to use some, uh, some defunding police examples from America um, post uh, uh, George Floyd's murder. And he, he said, in, I, I remember reading that defunding the police there has not helped. In fact, it's gone backwards. Um, so that just goes towards them trying to shut down this whole justice reinvestment movement that's happening in Australia and trying to create this. We can't go easy on law and order because we're going to go backwards. But all that we're hearing now from our community leaders all around the country is let's have a reinvestment in justice. Let's reform justice so that our mob are not funneled in to lockups and we're not shot dead. You know, that's the end. That, that's the end game here. And that children are not taken from their families. And to, so, Heidi, I'm completely with you because there is um, that that's what they're talking about. I mean, the, the Australian will say, but we but we support the Uluru Statement from the heart. Well, do you? Because 
um, if you did, you would be all for this, you know, reinvestment that all of our leaders are talking about and, and demanding. Again, if this conversation has raised anything for you, please consider giving 13 Yarn 139276 a call. That's 139276, the new 24-7 national support line for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders, or you can call Lifeline on 131114. This has been a special episode of Fourth Estate on 2SER. Thanks to our guests, Professor Heidi Norman and Norelda Jacobs. Black Bias has been made possible with the amazing support of the Indigenous Land and Justice Research Group at the University of Technology, Sydney, indigenousx.com.au and JNI, the Judith Nielsen Institute for Journalism and Ideas. I'm Rihanna Patrick. And I'm Madeleine Heyman-Reba. Thanks for listening.